Hello there. Thanks for listening to the Elevate Christian Church podcast. We exist as a church to connect people with God and each other. Today's message comes to us from our associate minister and worship leader, Will Click. We hope this inspires you, grows you, and challenges you in your faith and your walk with Jesus. Enjoy! Uh, My name is Will. For those of you who don't know who I am, I'm the associate minister here, and uh, I normally lead worship. And so I get the privilege today of uh, closing out this series that we have been in for the last several weeks called Heart of the Savior, as you see on the screen, which is working now. I heard you guys had some issues, so glad that's working. Um, but so what I want to do this morning is uh, instead of kind of just recapping the whole entire series and then uh, ending it today, um, I'll let you, if you need to go back and watch, you can go onto the Elevate app or you can go to the, the website, elevatecc.com, and you can go back and recap all those messages yourself at any time, just not right now, please. And uh, if you are here for the first time and uh, this, is, this is your first time visiting with us, First of all, thank you for being here. We're glad that, that you have chosen to, to join us today, uh, this Sunday morning. You can also do the same thing because I am not the regular preacher. Our lead minister, Kevin, is the one that has done the series up until this point. So to get a better feel of what a normal Sunday would look like, please go back and check those out and you can get caught up. So thank you for being here. Welcome to the 1030 service. Uh, as I said, I'm not going to recap the series, but I will say that this series, the, the whole purpose is just to look at some stories that we uh, see in the Gospels where we can peer into the heart of Jesus, where we can see how he treated others and we see the compassion of Jesus. And the aim of the series is not just to uh, get together on a Sunday morning and, and hear Kevin talk about these stories and, and walk away saying, wow, Jesus is so amazing. What a wonderful person. I love him so much. He's so compassionate. And then that's where it ends. The purpose of looking at these stories is to, to look at these stories and let them form and shape us. And so we look at these stories to allow them to increase our own capacity for compassion towards the same kinds of people who Jesus showed compassion. All right, so in other words, I don't think it's really beneficial to our world if all of us in here only show compassion to your neighbor right now or other people in this room or only church people. We're not really changing the world if we only love and care uh, for other church people. So Jesus was constantly on mission to spread the good news of the kingdom of God beyond the bubble of not just Judaism, but the elite Jewish leaders, Jesus kept expanding the reach of God's kingdom by unashamedly inviting, including and involving the surprising, shocking, and scandalous people that the religious insiders deemed as outsiders. And, and these religious leaders were very inclusive in that they included everybody who wasn't them in the category of people who did not belong, that they called sinners. In philosophy, in psychology, this is called othering. Maybe you have heard this before. Uh, When we take another person or group of people and place them in a category of not belonging, othering is not 
just merely uh, noticing differences in somebody or a group of people, but is taking those differences and rejecting them and subjugating those people to a lower status by putting them outside of ourselves or our group. And when we label uh, someone else and place groups of people in the category of somehow not belonging, we have othered them. They have become other. And we say that we are in and they are out by doing that. So if our goal of this series is increasing our own capacity to have compassion for others, then one way to understand doing this is simply to let go of any categories that we might have created in our own minds, to tear down any walls that we have constructed that says, I'm in and you are out. And when we expand those borders and can honestly welcome the outsider in, then I think that is what having compassion like Jesus looks like. And I believe that's what we've been seeing through these stories in this sermon series. You know, I've been challenged the last several years of my life uh, with this idea as I've learned to, to see how dualistic we have become in thinking about things in our society and our culture. And, and by dualistic, I mean assuming that there are uh, two contrasting mutually exclusive choices or realities to choose from. And it's the whole this or that, good or bad, negative or positive type of thinking that we create, and it too often oversimplifies things into two choices. And whichever choice we have labeled in our own minds as the good or right choice, we can feel good or satisfied about our decision because we are rejecting uh, the bad. And this can happen at a very superficial level, of course. Um, but here's what I mean. Do you remember a few years back, I think it was around 2018, do you, <laughs> I guess it was one of those viral videos, but it was actually an audio clip that you were supposed to listen to, and you heard either the word Laurel or the word Yanny. Do, do any of you remember that? More people in first service, surprisingly. Um, but anyway, so in, this, in this, this clip, you're supposed to listen to the clip, and you hear this voice say, Laurel, or you listen to it and it says Yanny. And so basically you're hearing the same thing, but your people are coming to two different conclusions. And the, the people who heard Yanny could not believe and conceive that somebody else heard Laurel, because clearly it says Yanny in this clip. And then the people who heard Laurel were like, that is crazy. You are out of your mind. It says Laurel, not Yanny. And families were divided. There was a line drawn. The country was split. Or how about, um, are you, this is even further back and maybe more obscure reference, but uh, how many of you are Team Edward or Team Jacob? You remember that? Yeah. <laughs> So as a side note, when I first came here to, to Elevate in 2009, I was the youth minister, and uh, I have one of my former students here. She'll remember this. Uh, when I came, it was still pretty popular, uh, the Twilight Saga, which is you know, where that comes from. And I had, nothing, I had, had no idea what this was, um, but all the teen girls seemed to be talking about Team Edward and Team— like one girl had a shirt that this, this said Team Edward, I'm pretty sure— uh, and so I was like, what is, what is this Team Edward, Team Jacob thing? And so I finally watched the, the series of movies just to figure out, you know, what the, the hype was. And I'm Team Jacob, by the way. So we, we do this kind of dualistic thinking where we just pick sides, one or the other. And, and for the most part, it, it is harmless. But we do this on a more serious level 
um, where we categorize and, and oversimplify things into two categories. Uh, for example, rich or poor. Um, or, and, I, and this is all, I'm just going to mention it and I'm not going to talk about it or say anything else, but Republican or Democrat. Uh, everything is condensed into two sides and that's it. And, and while it may in many times seem harmless uh, to be either Team Jacob, Team Edward, or Laurel, or Yanny, the danger becomes when we start to demonize the other side to where they become our enemy or are somehow a threat. And I think this is the context where we find Jesus in the story that we're going to be in today. So in Luke chapter 15, we're going to be in the whole chapter. Uh, so it should be on the screen, but it'll also be beneficial if you pull it out on your Bible app or if you actually have a hard copy Bible, um, that will be helpful as well. But we're going to be in Luke 15. I'm going to start with verses 1 and 2. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so here we see this this kind of dualistic two categories that the Pharisees have created. It is them, the Pharisees, and the teachers of the law, and then everybody else that they deemed as sinners in another category. And essentially, their only accusation against Jesus at this point is that Jesus is welcoming these certain people and he's eating with them. Now, if that's the, the worst thing that somebody could accuse me of, I feel like that would be awesome. Um, unfortunately, that's not the case. <laughs> So in this scene, uh, which starts out in, in Luke 14, the, the, the previous chapter, uh, Jesus is invited to a dinner at a prominent Pharisee's house. And Jesus, at this dinner, seems to have brought, not necessarily on purpose, but he has a crowd of people, these, these outcasts, these, these sinners, as the, the Pharisees were calling them. He has this group of people that have been following Jesus and interested in his teachings and his, his upside-down kingdom uh, nature that he's talking about. And so these people seem to have, according to Luke 14, followed him to this dinner party. They haven't been invited to the dinner, and it seems like maybe they're outside, or some kind of like courtyard type of scene going on, but they're in the general vicinity of Jesus and this dinner. And so they can see and kind of hear what's going on. So in Luke chapter 14, Jesus is, is talking with the other Pharisees, and he starts kind of getting into a, a heated debate with uh, the Pharisees and, and the host himself. And it seems like these, these followers of Jesus who, who are crashing the party, so to speak, start to pick up on like, oh, things are getting like, ooh, we're getting real heated over here. And so this, this group of people starts to kind of close in a little closer and a little closer to Jesus to where they can hear what Jesus is saying. All right, and so that's where we end up here at the beginning of Luke chapter 15. And so in Luke 15, the whole entire chapter is just three parables that Jesus tells. And he was telling parables in Luke 14 as well, but Luke 15 is just three parables. So somehow these three parables are what Jesus is using to respond to what is happening uh, in this dinner party with the Pharisees. And so it begins with the Pharisees muttering to themselves, this guy he's welcoming this type of people and he's eating with them. And so Jesus tells these parables as a response to that. 
Okay, so we're going to read that in just a moment, but I want us to kind of pause there for a moment and talk a little bit about parables. Um, how many of you grew up going to church and went to Sunday school and you learned what a parable was? All right, yeah, I did. And uh, from a wee little lad, I remember that a parable is a earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Maybe you learned it a little bit different than that, but that's what I, I learned growing up. And that stuck with me, and that's a fine way to understand what a parable is. Um, but the, the problem is that it's a little bit more than that, or I say it's a lot more than that. And it, it is a, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, but if we only can, can think of a parable in terms of that at that level, then we will miss some more richness of meaning and understanding of what Jesus is actually trying to communicate when he uses parables. And so real quickly, some, some kind of interesting points about uh, parables. So parables belong to an ancient wisdom tradition uh, in Hebrew called Mishal. Mishal. Uh, and it included poetry, riddles, stories, proverbs, and dialogues. It was a specific type of medium or communication that was used by rabbis, much like we see Jesus doing. And just like other forms of, of literary devices and genres, there are rules or general guidelines um, that make parables what they are. So that they follow these guidelines and it falls into the category of a parable. And because of that, we have to read them accordingly. And one feature of parables is that they don't necessarily have just one simple meaning. Like a fable, if you learned this in school, a fable is similar to a parable in that at the end of the story, there's just one simple, like, here's the moral of the story, and that's it. But parables didn't work that way. They can kind of work that way, but there's also lots of different ways to kind of come to a conclusion based on the same story. So parables were a little bit different in that regard. So when we think of parables as merely an earthly story with a heavenly meaning— uh, we run the risk of missing some more depth of meaning. Uh, Episcopal scholar Cynthia Bourgeau writes that Jesus, quote, takes the familiar world of Mashal, uh, that, that ancient tradition of, of wisdom literature, far beyond the safety zone of conventional morality into a world of radical reversal and paradox. He is transforming proverbs into parables, and their job is not to confirm but to uproot, end quote. All right, and then another interesting thing about parables, uh, especially with the parables uh, of Jesus, is it's not that he used parables that was unique, but he used parables in a unique way. Um, so as I've already said, it was a very common uh, tool to, to use by rabbis to, to, to teach in parables, but the Gospel of Mark lets us in on a little bit of a unique twist that Jesus oftentimes would use when he's telling parables. Uh, and in the Gospel of Mark, um, like, like we were talking about earlier, parables uh, can, can tell a story, they can have a meaning at the end, that um, can be used as somewhat like a, a sermon illustration to kind of explain a point that the, the teacher is trying to make. Um, but what Jesus does, according to Mark, is that he would tell parables, and not all the time, but oftentimes, he would tell parables not to explain and, and uh, tell you what he means by whatever point he's trying to make, but he would tell a parable so that the, the meaning of the message would actually be concealed. It would be hidden. And so he would end his parables with, let those who have ears, let them hear. 
And so he's trying to, it's like he's leaving little breadcrumbs and that only those who were hungry enough to follow those breadcrumbs would get to the actual meaning of his parables. And so that was kind of unique to Jesus when it comes to parables. Uh, theologian uh, Klein Snodgrass describes Jesus' parables as a form of indirect communication. Not just not, not direct communication, but indirect communication. He said, quote, Direct communi- communication is important for conveying information, but learning is more than information intake, especially if the learner is someone who already thinks they understand. People entrenched in their current understanding see their defense understanding set their defenses against direct communication and end up conforming the message into the channels of their current understanding of reality. But indirect communication finds a way in through the back window to confront a person's view of reality. A parable's ultimate aim is to draw in the listener, to awaken insights, to stimulate the conscience, and move to action. Jesus' parables are prophetic instruments— used to get God's people to stop, reconsider their way of viewing reality, and to change their behavior, end quote. All right, and then the third thing about parables um, is that Jesus's parables can kind of be boiled down into three main themes or or three kinds uh, of parables. Uh, So whenever Jesus told a parable, he was trying to convey one of three things, Uh, the, the first being the unexpected nature of the kingdom of God. And then uh, the other one is the upside down value system of the kingdom of God. And then other times he would tell parables for the, the third thing. In the, at the end of the parable, the, the listener was faced with a choice to be made. So Jesus would tell a parable in a way that leaves the listener understanding that uh, that Jesus telling this parable is, is making me have to make a decision based on the parable. And so those are the, kind of the three aims that, that Jesus was, was trying to accomplish um, that we see in the Gospels with, with his parables. All right, so with all of that being said, um, I think that's kind of going to help us get ready to hear Luke 15 as we hear these, these next three parables that he teaches. And so what I'm going to do is just read through the three, and I'll stop a few times and kind of point out a few things and then, um, and then just have some takeaways from it. So starting back in Luke 15, if you're following along, starting in verse 1, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. So this is the first one. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. You might have heard this before, uh, that the, the Pharisees, one of their big things was like staying ceremonially or ritually clean and pure all the time. It's one of the things that Jesus was up against with them throughout the, the Gospels. And so Jesus, right out of the gate, is already trying to like offend them or at least get under their skin a little bit by saying, suppose one of you, Pharisees, had a hundred sheep, which they would not have had 100 sheep. So Jesus is trying to ruffle some feathers here. He continues, doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. 
Okay, and then he continues. This is the second parable, verse 8. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then he tells the third parable. Verse 11, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. That word squandered, uh, depending on what uh, version of the Bible you're reading, uh, sometimes we'll say uh, lavish or wasteful. In Latin, it's the word prodigus, which is where we get the word prodigal. And oftentimes this, this parable is referred to as the prodigal son. Side note, when I heard this story growing up all the time, uh, it was all, often referred to as the prodigal son. So I always kind of associate this story with it being called the prodigal son. And, and as I've heard it preached on and taught throughout the years, it seems like the, the main thing that was the focus from this story was the, the son who left. He, he ran away, but he comes back. And so it, it was all about like the, the son repenting and, and returning back to the father. And so I associated prodigal with meaning like the returning or the repentant son, and that was wrong. Verse 14, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Uh, again, you probably heard this a million times with this story. Uh, Jewish people stayed away from pigs. They were considered unclean animals. So the fact that this Jewish man is now having to work pigs and eat with them would just highlight the, the kind of the rock bottom state that he finds himself in. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion, which we've been talking about this whole series. He was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And again, I know you probably heard this a million times, but another example of kind of like the shocking details of this story is that in that, that time, that culture, uh, very patriarchal, male-dominated society, a father would not have run and especially would not have run towards a son who heaps a huge amount of shame on the father and his family. And so there's this really kind of, wow, that's a, that's a shocking image that Jesus is using. And of course, then him kissing him and all that, that's also in there. Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now, 
that would be a great ending to the story if it stopped right there. It doesn't stop right there, but we could. And at that, at that ending, at this point in this parable, it is following the same structure as the first two parables. The same structure of the lost sheep, the same structure as the, the lost coin. There's something that is lost, it becomes found, and then there's celebration at that thing becoming found. All right, so that's the same structure. Now, there are some elements already different in this, this parable that, that are missing from the first two. There's more developed characters, and there's kind of a longer buildup in the story, but it follows that same exact structure. And so the listeners of this probably would have expected Jesus to be done at this point, but Jesus continues. And so they probably felt like, oh, this is an unexpected twist here. And so Jesus continues, verse 25, Meanwhile... The older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. How many of you ever get upset when your parents don't give you a goat to celebrate? I think I was just talking to my dad about that recently. I shouldn't have said that. Now I lost my place. (laughs) But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And it's interesting to know, we're not going to spend any time on this, but it is interesting to note that Jesus in telling this story now associates not just lost and found, but uses the words death and life death, but now he's alive. And so some kind of association with lostness and being dead and foundness and being alive. And so there's a lot more that we could explore here. There's a lot more to talk about, uh, lots of things to kind of mine and and pull all kinds of gems out of this. But I want to just kind of uh, keep this very simple and and just give you a few takeaways uh, from from these parables. Um, And maybe they're more like musings or, or thoughts, and, and maybe these insights, because they've been helpful for me and my own spiritual growth, maybe they will help you as well. So the first thing is the parable of the lost son isn't supposed to be told by itself. It's not supposed to be told by itself. And although it stands up as a story that you could tell from beginning to end, it holds up. There's lots of good things you could pull from it lots of applicable things for us to learn and to to use in our everyday lives. Jesus didn't tell it by itself and because it's not supposed to be told by itself. It belongs in this group of three. And surely you have heard the power of three, right? The the rule of three, it's all over in everything in our world uh, since the time of Jesus and probably before that. But our minds tend to uh, understand things better in groups of three. It's in advertising, it's in comedy, it's in movies that um, our brains even uh, can pick up on a pattern when, when there's three consecutive things. So you have one thing, two things that's like it, and, and it's when you get to the third thing that your brain recognizes that there's some kind of pattern. 
And so there's power in this group of three. So I, I'll give you an example. Um, if my four-year-old son ran up to me after church today and was like, Daddy, what are we eating for lunch? I'm so hungry. And I'm like, okay, we're going to eat. Don't worry. How about we just run over you know, next door to church here, the Mellow Mushroom Pizza Place, and, uh, and I'll just order some pies for our family. You know? And we head over there. Some chuckles. I didn't get any chuckles in the first service. Do you get it? Pizza pie. My son, he's four. He hears pie. And he's like, pumpkin? I want to get pumpkin pie. Okay. Well, clearly I'm not a comedian. But the point is, there's, there's a pattern. You're starting to see a pattern. Cheese, pepperoni. And then the punchline is in the third. Okay, so that's very similar to what is happening here uh, with Jesus telling these parables. It's the first parable, the second parable, the third parable is the punchline. And so Jesus tells these three consecutive parables. And if we take the third parable out of context, and like I said, even though it stands by itself, we're actually missing the greater point that Jesus is trying to make. All right, the second thing that has been uh, very profound for me, I'll let you be the judge, but uh, the second thing I, I want you to notice is, is noticing who the God character is in each of these three parables. Recognizing who the God character is. Um, and I'll start with the last one that we just read, with the, the parable of the lost son. Uh, we get immediately who God is supposed to be represented by in this story, right? It's the Father. The Father is the God character in the story. That's really easy. God is Father. That's a metaphor we can get behind. We use it around here actually all the time. It's obvious from how the story is told that that, uh, that, that Father is, is representing the God character. And then in the first story uh, of the, the sheep, the lost sheep and the shepherd, God is represented by the shepherd, a good shepherd who leaves his 99 sheep to go find the one lost sheep. We just sang a song about it. Uh, actually. So we get that. We're, we're, we're all on board. But who is the God character in the second story? It's a woman. It's a woman. woman. The woman in the story is the God character. And it's, again, another one of those kind of like the hearers of this parable would have probably been a little bit shocked because clearly in these parables, uh, Jesus is using these characters to represent God, and Jesus uses a woman to represent God. And so and again, in, in that kind of time and culture, in a male-dominated patriarchal society, that would have been a little bit shocking. Like, oh, I can see God as a good shepherd. Lots of Old Testament passages talk about that. God as a father, yes, that we call, we pray to God our father. But then Jesus uses the story to say that God is a woman in this story. And that would have been very uncomfortable for them and maybe uncomfortable for some of you to hear it. But it's like Jesus is using these types of teachings and in these shocking moments and details in the story to to kind of wake people up. God and his kingdom are so much different than you previously thought. It's upside down values. It's unexpected. And what are you going to do with this information? That seems to be what he's getting at. And then my third takeaway uh, from these parables um, that, that really is profound for me and, and really just kind of punches me in the gut every time. But each lost thing in these parables, each lost thing actually belonged the whole time. Belonging was never in question. And I think that right there is the center, the heart of why Jesus told the parables in the first place. 
Because these religious insiders, this elite group of people, insisted that there actually was a group of people that they labeled as sinners who were somehow not belonging and were somehow outside of God's love and care. And Jesus tells these stories to say that everyone already belongs. The sheep did not do anything wrong or sinful to become lost. It just kept doing what it's supposed to do, eat grass. And it just realized at one point, maybe it didn't even realize, but the shepherd realized that the sheep had been lost. And so it's the shepherd that does all the work to bring the sheep back into the fold. But the sheep, even though lost it may be, never stopped belonging to the shepherd. The coin, likewise, could do nothing of its own volition to become lost. It was just in the story somehow misplaced. And the woman is the active character doing all the searching to finally find the coin. But the coin never stopped belonging to the woman. And although the wasteful younger son in the third story was active in his becoming lost, he never was not the father's son. Belonging was never in question. Each lost thing belonged the whole time in spite of its lostness. Then the older son, we read, who stays home, refuses to enter the party for his younger brother. So we see this theme of of which story are you going to tell yourself? Which story do you have in your mind about who God is? I'm too bad, so God has rejected me. Or at least that's what the story that I'm telling myself. Or I've been good, and now I refuse to participate in the party of God's generosity. The younger son thinks that it's his badness that cost him his relationship as son to the father. And it's the older son's goodness that actually ends up separating him from his father. Which story are we going to tell ourselves? So through the stories that we've heard in this series, through the the parables that we've read today, we read that Jesus is is clearly welcoming the outsiders, the outcasts, the marginalized, the broken. He's inviting them to the party, but he's not creating a new category that says, you guys are the ones that are in, and the religious leaders are the ones that are out. Jesus is telling these stories to say to the Pharisees, wake up. You guys are already at the party. You have already belonged, but let them in. We all belong. And if you can let them in, and you, and us, and we, we can celebrate God's generosity together. You're already at the party. But we have to decide for ourselves if we'll participate or not. So if we want to increase our capacity for compassion to be like Jesus, then we need to do the same thing and welcome both to the table. Welcome both to the party. We hope you enjoyed listening to our podcast today. If you'd like to learn more about Elevate or partner with us in what God is doing here, check out our website at elevatecc.com. Until next time, God bless you and thanks again.